Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Maybe, first of all, thanks to the Lyceum Movement for having us. It's always fun to do these live tapings with an actual audience of people. So uh, welcome, and I uh, hope you enjoy being a part of this. I'll maybe just start with um, a little Iowa anecdote that was, because um, it does relate to meaning in some roundabout way, maybe. We'll f- but this is, a, I have been to Iowa once before, but it was a sad experience. Um, I was doing a cross-country road trip from uh, Pennsylvania, ideally, to California, but um, my car broke down in Altoona, like right there, and then I stayed in Altoona for a couple days trying to get the car fixed. We weren't able to, so we had to, we had to like ship the car to California later on. It was catastrophic engine damage. So when I think about Iowa, or at least until today when I thought about Iowa, I thought about catastrophic engine damage, but um, now I'm going to be thinking about the Lyceum movement, so that's better, I think, and a, uh, a big improvement. Okay, so I'll, I'll just say this is the first time I've ever heard Shadi tell a story about driving. He's yeah. normally like a sort of Uber or um, or uh, one of those like weird scooter things. I used to have a car, believe it or not. Yeah, so. Um, so the question that we're asking today, um, have we lost meaning? I mean, short answer, yes, apparently. Um, but um, the question is why and how do we find it? And maybe I'll just start by sharing some of my own biases because part of what we do at Wisdom of Crowds is we're not trying to persuade you that we're right. We're more interested in asking why we believe the things that we believe. So I have my own views. How did I come to them? Like, what's going on in my mind? So I want to be like straightforward about what about some of my starting premises. So I'll just lay that out, and you know, maybe it'll provoke my uh, my friends here. Okay, so um, I think that a lot of us feel that something is wrong. Something feels off in our current moment. I mean, I feel it personally, um, but I also feel guilty that I feel something's off because. You know, we're in a pretty good situation. We're living in America in the 21st century compared to previous eras. Like, we have it pretty good. So there's something, sometimes I feel like it's self-indulgent a little bit when we go on and on about how we're sad and despairing and all of that because we do have a lot going for ourselves. So there is this kind of tension. And, but that's, I think, part of, part of really the puzzle here we should be feeling better about life. We should feel like we have more meaning. Um, we should feel that things are better or could be better, but we don't. There's a sense that catastrophe is right around the corner. 
and there's this kind of sense of like a dark cloud looming. Um, and that's just the way we, and that colors our politics, it infects our politics. A lot of negativity, obviously. And sometimes it's well-deserved. But I do wonder sometimes, you know, um, were medieval peasants happier? Like this is a question that, you know, Sam and I talk a lot about. You know, if you go to say 1300 or 1400, people had much lower life expectancies. You would have high levels of infant mortality, but people did seem to have basic meaning in the sense that you had a religious tradition that you were part of for the most part. Um, you had a community that you were a part of. There was a sense of belonging there. But I think also something quite important, you didn't you didn't question too much about your alternatives. Part of the crisis that we're in now is that we're overwhelmed by choice. We're all searching for meaning, but the fact of the matter is that we can find meaning in so many different places. So how do we choose the right place to find our meaning? Think about something even as simple as yoga for those or meditation practice. There's a lot of different ways to do meditation. It took me several years to find the right kind of meditation that really fit with me. Or there's like 15 yoga studios in a one mile radius of where I live in Washington, DC. How do I choose the right kind of yoga? And then there's like five different kinds of classes within each yoga studio. And then you just, you feel overwhelmed. And this, there, are, um, there is quite a bit of insight into what's called the paradox of choice that some of you might be familiar with, there's an um, experiment in behavioral economics where they give one group three jars of jam and then the other group 27 jars of jam. And you might think that with 27 jars of jam, oh my God, abundance of choice, you're gonna find the one that like, you just absolutely love and that's gonna be your thing and all that. What they find is that the people with 27 jars end up being profoundly dissatisfied with their choice because they've been exposed to so many things and there and there's only so much you can kind of like take in on that and then three choices you're actually confident that you might have actually made the right choice so that's a bit of like a, um i think of a microcosm of part of the problem that we're facing but maybe sam like how do you feel about the medieval peasant comparison because i like do you think that people were actually happier and more fulfilled and if they were like, would we prefer to be in that kind of environment? Like, if you could just trade places with Samuel Kimbriel, modern, elite, intellectual, and then go back in time and live, like, in a little village with much lower life expectancy. Have at it. I mean, so I think it's interesting that you're using the word happiness also. So, like, the question of how happiness and meaning relate. Like, can you have meaning but be unhappy or can you have happiness but not have meaning um i i think there are ways in which um every human civilization has had to deal with this question of constraint and then what you want to do within the constraints that you're given and one of the um, things I think about a lot is what it's like to write and to, um, especially to write poetry. So the beginning of that process is not like limitless freedom. It's um, some English teacher who uh, you 
have deep annoyance against just telling you like here are like all of the ways that you cannot do this and you have to like structure it incredibly strictly and um, in in one sense that like first part is like super frustrating and annoying but then that gradually becomes the like basis on which this becomes exciting and um, and it becomes the tools with which you're able to kind of construct something larger um, I, I do think that um, the experience of too much constraint is very real. And I think it's real in your uh, medieval peasant story where like there are many ways that I think that sort of person would want to be able to de determine more of their lives than they, they had the possibility for. Um, and I also think that the, the thing that you're describing is also a very elite situation now. Hmm. Like there are many people, including, um, you know, like a lot of people I'm very close with uh, who don't have anything like the choices that you're describing and are actually much more, like their day-to-day -day suffering or unhappiness is about the way that just to make the sort of bare life work involves a real hardship. Like, having um, very little room for leisure because of that, of that thing. So, I, so on the one hand, I, I wanna say like, no, like there are like obviously things about like our lives that are better. Um, but I, I also think that something in that medieval peasant analogy is real. And mm -hmm. what, what I would say here is that there were mechanisms for exploring or for expansiveness in a fashion that like a lot of people that I see in like modern professional context don't have. Actually, like I think a lot of the people that I know have really small lives. They have the possibility to fly to Barcelona when they feel like, but that doesn't mean that they um, have happiness. And that I think that's a real and pressing question. And the the main thing that I that I would say in relation to your medieval peasant story is the. Um, I do think that religion played a major role. Like mm, the religion. sense of like the infinite horizon was maybe not given to you because you could uh, go to Whole Foods and choose all kinds of things that you wanted. Like that's like a different kind of infinity. Yeah. But like <laughs> um, the idea of a kind of, you know, um, both you and I work on medieval Islam in various ways. And like, I think the sense of like an order that had depth and resonance and beauty to it that you didn't control but that you could trust. That is a kind of infinity that I think is really yeah. moving. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to more about the religion question. I mean, Susan, what, what do we mean? Oh, do you want to? Well, I was, I'm gonna, I was going to chime in there. So I think it, this is fine to do, but I think we have to be careful about terminology as well. So are we conflating the idea of happiness and the idea of meaning? And the things that you mentioned with resonance and beauty um, and the things that religion traditionally had been able to provide do seem to me to provide a sense of meaning. Um, but happiness might be something different. And I was sort of thinking about, um, some of you may have heard of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. These peasants are fulfilling the very bottom level. They're not seeking self-actualization or anything at the top level of this hierarchy of need, right? Like basically we all need security and we need food. And that's pretty much the level at which they exist. And they probably go to mass and their priest probably tells them what meaning they're supposed to have and what they're supposed to do. But as you said, that's not 
there aren't a lot of choice, life choices for them, either in the transcendent realm or, um, or in their day-to-day -day lives, it would seem to me. Um, so I, I, they may have meaning, but I'm not sure, unless we assume that all of this is very subjective and relative, um, which is maybe another question we yeah. want to talk about. I'm not sure the extent to which they would have been happy in the traditional sense that we think yeah, of it. That's good. So what, what do we mean when we say the word meaning? What is the meaning of meaning? And what is the, and happiness, you know, how, how should people even like aspire to happiness? Should that even be the objective that we think about when we're organizing our lives? And there can be a tension that if you pursue certain kinds of meaning, you won't necessarily be thrilled about it, at least not right away. But like, how do you see those relationships? I, I think there's a couple things there. W what I wrote down when, we, when you first started talking, Shadi, was do we mean collective meaning or do we mean individual meaning? Those seem to be potentially in tension, maybe not. Um, but do, are we talking about meaning as a society, or is it just meaningfulness for me in my day-to-day -day life? Because I have a four-year-old daughter, she provides meaning to my existence, I love snuggling with her, she drives me crazy. Um, but there's a bigger sense of meaning, of collective meaning that we work together to establish as a community. Um, and so I think we have to figure out what we mean by meaning, and at what level, at what hierarchy are we are we establishing that? I mean, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that the word meaning should relate? I, I like, I, th I think a lot of people I know, it's like, yeah, my meaning, like, what, it, like, what's meaningful to me, and I want the space for that, um, versus the sense that, like, if the if the meaning is like collective, you're, if your community is determining it, like, you get to participate in that, but you also lose a lot of choice, um, and and there is this these phrases that we hear all the time, like live your truth. There's a bunch of others that you probably hear about. And I think it's really bad advice. I don't think you should tell people to live their truth because they could be wrong. They could, <laughs> I mean, it's possible that whatever they think their truth is at a given moment is not actually what they should be doing, especially not to, I don't wanna like start on a rant about like the youth and the youngsters and all that, but um, you know, uh, people who are trying to find themselves and, and figure out what's important to them, there's a lot of fluidity there. It's difficult to know. I still struggle with this. Yeah, like, do, do you feel like you've found yourself? <laughs> You're like, what, like in adulthood now. Yeah, look, like so, we're, we're like adults. Have we like found ourselves? Yeah, so sometimes when people tell me like, Shadi, be authentic. Because I'm someone who, who's in the public a lot, I get in, and then there's a performative element to it, you, because when you're using words with an audience, you're making choices about how you want other people to see you. And, you know, sometimes authenticity. I'm, I feel torn in different directions in terms of the things I want to prioritize in this second phase of my life. I mean, so I'm 39, and the average male life expectancy in America is 76. So I'm about like, you know, whatever, 52 to 53% like through my life, apparently. Um, this is like very, these are very specific numbers, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm farther along than you are and I'm really depressed now. <laughs> uh, w w women's life expectancy is higher though. Thank I you. might still be farther along. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm, I feel like there are the lower desires and there are the higher desires. There are 
like what is our nature and how do we move closer? It's, religion relates to this as well because if you believe that you were created by God, then God want you know God wants you to be a certain way more than potentially other paths, and then that can be in tension with your own kind of like immediate desires and self gratification and all of that. So I think we're constantly in a state of wrestling. I I am. I wrestle between different conceptions of the good. Like, what do I really want to prioritize at this point in my life? And sometimes I shift. Like, you know, we've known each other for a couple years now, and you've probably seen how I've changed in terms of certain things that I want or say that I want. So which version of me was more authentic? The one that you met three or four years ago or the one today? And if I had been so intent on living my truth three or four years ago, maybe that wouldn't have been good for me. And maybe I wouldn't have come to certain realizations that are actually positive. I mean, it's interesting. So we've had this like ongoing sequence on Wisdom of Crowds where we've been talking about uh, all the friends that we have that go to therapy and, yeah. um, and like do the work. <laughs> and uh, the thing that's funny about that is um, on the one hand, it's something really recognizable, which is a kind of self-interrogation. Like, who are you? What does it mean to be to be me? How does that work? Like, how do you solidify that? And how do you like clear out some of the things that have kind of, um, you know, like submerged you in a way that you can't actually? But what you're describing is almost like the um, infinite jam jar paradox, but applied to yourself. Like. Yeah am I just like infinite numbers of jam or is there like something specific that I am that is actually determinative? Yeah. How do we decide who we are? Yeah. What would you, uh, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> oh man. So I have so many, so, sorry for coming on our around. podcast. Um, I think there are different answers at different points in time. I think the ancients would have said there's absolutely something toward which we all strive. Um, Aristotle certainly would have said that, right? There are things that make us fully flourishing human beings and we strive for those things, right? There are virtuous activities. We are part of a community. You can't live outside of a community. He famously says that those who live outside of a community are either beasts or gods, right? So we all need community. Um, I think in the modern world, we have become much more um, egocentric. I don't necessarily mean that in a negative, in a negative way. Um, but we are much more concerned with finding our own authentic selves. I'm not sure that we have permanent authentic selves. And I think that's okay. And um, I think we search at that point in time for what is meaningful to us and that that can change. And I think that if we have some level of comfort with the idea that that can change and we can be okay with the fact that that can change and that what suited me four years ago or six years ago isn't what suits me now, um, then that can relieve a lot of anxiety and maybe reduce the need for therapy, I'm not sure. <laughs> so maybe like this is actually a debate that we should all have a little bit, because I, I think I kind of take the other side of this. I, I tend to think that a lot of the discussion about authenticity and, um, and also even like some of the kind of idea of like going to therapy and doing self-interrogation in, self has been really good. And um, so, you know, I... I um, have lived in three, three, and then you know traveled a bunch in other places, three vastly different places. So, rural Colorado is where I grew up, in like relatively um, poor settings. Then I lived in England for a decade um, in uh, like academic kind of context, and now 
I'm in a place with too much humidity and, and government buildings yeah. and um, in DC. And, um, and I would say that it's still, so there are definitely things about my personality that come out differently in different places, different priorities kind of come to the fore in those different contexts. But it's definitely the case that like in each of them, like I can trace a pretty consistent person and reason for making decisions that I make and things that like, and having like things in my life that I love also. Like part of what, I, when I think about like authenticity, part of it is a consistency in me, but it's also a consistency in things that I care about. Like it, it is the community of um, people and also other things. Like um, f just to be concrete, like I, um, I make all of my housing decisions in DC based upon proximity to this, um, this national park that comes down into the city, which is called Rock Creek. And it is, it's like, you, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm a runner and I have probably run it's like 750 miles in that park and I can still get lost sometimes because the trails are so crazy. Like it's like tangled old growth forest in the middle of the city, it's amazing. But like that's a priority for me and it's something that I can like trace pretty deeply in terms of um, who I am and why I care about it. And, and that, that's, those are not, like the background motivational structure there, I don't think I could change. Like I could change, I could gradually habituate myself to not needing to be in nature as much or to not caring about um, like whatever, having alone time in that kind of way. But the background sense of like liking something or wanting it, that is like real and fairly yeah, but, just, but even hearing you describe your sense of self, I feel like most people aren't like you. I, I mean, I don't, you have a, I think you have a very clear sense of the good for you and what is beautiful, what is just, what is meaningful. And you, and I don't get a sense that you're like debating with yourself, like, oh, wait, is this really what I want? You have a very clear sense, I think, of what you want. Um, and, I, you know, maybe for another time we can, you know, you can give us some insight into how you got to this, you know, wonderful place of fulfillment and contentment. I think we but, might be overstating it, but yeah. <laughs> but, I, I, but, I mean, is your sense that there are a lot of people like you? Um, my, my sense, and this comes in part from teaching, is that a lot of people have a substrate or like a whatever the opposite of substrate, like an overstrate of, of um, distraction going on, that like there's just a lot of stimul stimulus and like busyness and having to take care of kids or like whatever job stuff or like constantly figuring out like what restaurant you want, whatever. Like whatever the like distraction or the like um, the device thing where you just like are constantly making sure there's like something going in your head. But when, you, when I teach students, um, what's very interesting is you can, there's a moment in teaching where they realize, oh, like I can relax now. Like I don't have to have all that stuff coming in. This is not gonna be like another demand. What I'm being asked to do in philosophy is to stop and pause and come down to myself. And, and that moment is fascinating. And like over time, over like weeks or months, you do realize people do know who they are, I think, in many cases. It's just that the like, external demands of life, the hardship in, in some cases, or the distraction from that sense of existential worry um, keeps them from realizing that there's something real that they do actually yeah. care about. 
Yeah, so I do want to get to religion and ask Susan about that. Um, if anyone up until this point has had something they want to share and maybe like a different experience. Okay, yeah. Just wait for the mic. As I say, listen, say who you are and... Oh, um, I'm Kevin. So as I listen to... And you're from, the, where are you from? From here in Iowa. I'm and, in Iowa. And what do you do? Sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Too much preface. Yeah. So as I'm listening to the conversation, the, the thought went through my mind uh, in the meaning piece of it, and you talked about happiness. Are you really talking about happiness or joy? Because when I listen to you about running, it sounds like you enjoy it. It's not that it gives you happiness. It's more of a joy-filled thing. Mm -hmm. And is that where we need to actually bring our focus back to is focusing on the things that give us joy rather than the happiness because it seems that meaning in life comes from the joy. That's, That's great. great. That's a great distinction. Do you want to say something? I, yeah. So um, this is maybe not going to answer your question, so apologies in advance. Um, when, I don't like that word, happiness, at all. Um, and when I teach Greek philosophy, I teach my students, we say happiness, but this is a really, really terrible translation of this concept. And what we mean, usually, in philosophical terms is... Can I just, can I just interrupt you, you to, say, to say quickly that um, the, the funny thing about the word etymologically is it means good demon. Yeah. Um, and unhappiness means bad demon, which who knows what that's actually referred to. Right. <laughs> yeah. It does literally mean Just to mean say we're good... in like a really weird world. We are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so I just teach it as fully flourishing, right? Fully flourishing. And I think that's a pretty accepted understanding. And there is, I don't know, I mean, I think there is an element of joy in that. Um, but that doesn't go deeply enough because what we're really talking about is how do we become fully human? How do we actualize all of our potential as human beings? Um, and some of that might be experiencing joy or experiencing happiness. But, and, but joy probably also has a religious connotation, which I think we'll get back to at some point too. His question was, does the joy drive meaning? I'll think on it. I have a thought or two. <laughs> Go ahead with your thought. I, I'm Brianne uh, Sanchez, and I'm a writer here in Iowa. Um, and Sarah and I had the pleasure of working with some entrepreneurs a couple of years ago on a book um, where they took this idea of um, medieval time versus uh, now. And I'm, I'm curious about the expression of ambition as it relates to purpose. So the idea was, you know, if you were an ambitious person in the Middle Ages, right, and you had kind of a way to get ahead, you might go through a religious uh, pathway, right? And that now the way to express your ambition and your ideas fully is to become an entrepreneur. Um, and so I'm just curious about the, the connection or if you see a connection between ambition and purpose. Yeah, I think... I'll, I'll just say, I think ambition is a bit overrated. I mean, I'm, I'm quite ambitious, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it hasn't made me more fulfilled or happy. That said, would I, would I decide consciously to be unambitious? No. So I'm, it's kind of like a paradox. I mean, I do think this is like the big tension for you. It's like, um, 
like, yeah, what, what would you give up to have, like, closer friends, for example, or, or, like, a family life in a different way than the one you have? Like, are there, are there places where ambition, like, when, when, when you sort things, how do you, how do you sort? That's kind of part of the question of meaning, I think, is, like, oh, yeah, like, I've got this, like, real, like, this is no longer a jam jar choice. It's, like, like who do you want to have in your life and what do you, how much time are you willing to spend with them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, well, look, I'll, um, I don't also want this to be like a psychoanalysis session of me. <laughs> but um, again, we may not have given you a full disclosure about the nature of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but let's not talk about me. We'll just keep it focused on you guys. That'll be good. <laughs> but you know, we, I, Sam and I live in a city where a lot of people, if not most people, are incredibly ambitious and you see how it really can take them into dark places that I mean I, I feel like I work a lot there's a level of workaholism that I can't even relate to it's just, just at a different level and there are some people who their their jobs and for them they don't see their jobs as jobs that's part of the problem they see their jobs as callings they see, like, they're trying to literally change the world. So there's also, like, delusions of grandeur that you yourself matter so much and that if you stopped working on, like, a Friday night for, like, a couple hours and didn't check your phone, like, the world would actually be affected. So there's also ambition can be tied to, like, a sense of, like, ego, that it's, is, it's like really bad when your self delusions like actually map onto the world. Like um, I was thinking about this with um, with uh, Trump earlier. Like he does have like a lot of ego, and it's an ego that then also led him to be the most powerful person in the world. And yeah. that's weird. Like it's not a good thing to have those things align in certain cases. Like it's good for your self biases to get undermined occasionally. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, go ahead. I, I, well, to, to make a like slightly more substantive point here, I do think. Um, that the kind of emptiness that I think that there are different kinds of emptiness that are playing out I think there's one kind that is a kind of despair at um, life actually being very cruel and a lack of ability to pursue a sense of depth and um, real community and connection. I think all the time about this David Foster Wallace story that I cite in my book, um, where it's called um, a radically condensed history of post-industrial life, and it's like two sentences. And the ones that I can remember are, um, he made a witticism hoping to be liked, she laughed too hard hoping to be liked, and they both drove home alone with the same twist in their faces. And that does seem kind of recognizable, like where people are looking for something, they're seeking it, and it somehow goes wrong or sour, and then there's a kind of lack there. I think the kind that you're describing in the um, like sort of ambitious circles, though, is almost that people have tried a certain thesis about what would have meaning or what would have happiness, and then it doesn't work. And then instead of taking the results from that experiment seriously and be like, oh, like I should definitely then go make another choice and like try something else, they, just, they, they then are already a little bit addicted to the experiment. And so they've succeeded at like whatever, getting a um, columnist job at a newspaper or at, um, you know, like making a certain level of money in, um, in New York. And then that gives them like a further iteration of like, 
then, then they're unhappy in that thing, but then they're like, oh, I'm not gonna lose my previous theory. I'm just gonna go and try it again. And then like over a couple of decades, the only, you become quite empty and then the only thing you can do is keep pursuing that same addiction that you have. And I, I do think that that leaves those people specifically quite empty, but then I also think it ends up destroying the society. Like when you have that kind of, the people who make the biggest decisions not having like a solid basis in their lives, that's a troubling, I think it's a troubling yeah. way to build a civilization. And maybe this is where religion comes in. I mean, Susan, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, there might be some differences on how important religion is, but do you wanna just, what's your thinking on how much that should matter um, in terms of providing meaning and the structure of belonging and community? Does that have to be closely tied to religion and religious communities, or is there a secular way of doing it effectively? Oh, you give me the hard question. Um, <laughs> the one that's gonna make at least 50% of the audience really angry with me. Um, so I think, I'll, I'll just speak personally. I believe that there is some absolute truth. I, I, because otherwise, I don't know that I want to live in a world in which there is absolutely nothing that is true, good, beautiful. I think religion is um, a very, and I don't, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but a, a convenient way of accessing that truth. Um, it is a handed down wisdom of generations. Sometimes it's wrong and sometimes it gets revised. Um, and I think that it has the ability to conveniently interpret human experience and package it in a narrative. Right? It gives us a narrative that we wouldn't otherwise have. Otherwise, we're out trying to read all this philosophy and we're trying to find meaning. Um, but religion has the ability to package that accumulated human experience it's into one cohesive in a way. narrative. It is. And I don't think that we should feel badly about taking shortcuts. We take them when we drive because Indeed. they make more sense. I mean... Again, you don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after what and, and this doesn't sound like a good way to drive. I mean, to be fair, after what happened in Iowa, that kind of soured me on the experience. So well, I, I'm suddenly realizing things about your origin story that I didn't know before. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I think there are other ways to pack to, to, to create these narratives in our life, but I think that that is one that that tends to work for people. Um, and I, I, I had something, but I've forgotten it, and it was about driving, but I'll, I'll let you, I'll yeah, we'll let say, you go we'll, ahead. We'll just turn we'll, it we'll into a driving one. podcast. Um, oh, we have a, I think, question well, here. Uh, before that, can I just ask you quickly? Um, so, you know, when you, I think that the question you brought up at the beginning is really profound, which is, um, should meaning be something for the self, or should it be something collective? W what's your own sense about that? How do you how do you relate to that? Um, I have meaning for myself insofar as I'm part of a collective, which is not a popular um, answer, I think, in the modern world. Um, but I, I do I do have individual goals and ambitions. It's not to, I'm, I don't completely negate myself. I mean, and be absorbed into the whole or something. Um, but I think that I certainly find more individual meaning when I am part of a group. And so I don't think that we can divorce these two things. 
Um, but I do think we have to at least consider how we fit into them and that maybe all this self-exploration all the time is, can be counterproductive, possibly. That's a good segue for what I was going to say. Um, I'm Ashley and I'm a software founder and CEO. And um, I was thinking about this concept you guys started about the container and this paradox of choice and the role that the container can play or these constraints can play um, in helping people. So I have a friend who has a daughter who um, has ADHD and she was really struggling to make friends and social and all these different things. Um, and she had her daughter join this Dungeons and Dragons group and it has rules and, and uh, formalities and ways that they interact with each other. And now she has friends and she has a container in which to thrive under. And I was thinking about in this country, you know, we tell our children and each other, you can be anything you want to be. And it's almost overwhelming to tell someone that. But when you're born into a family of doctors, maybe you become a doctor. If you're born uh, into a family that went to Michigan State, maybe you go to Michigan State. But that this container actually can help people make decisions, uh, easier decisions, and I just wanted to see if you had any more like thoughts on the, the value of constraint in helping people solve what their purpose or meaning in life may be. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm very pro-constraint, personally. Like, and I, I'll give you one example. Um, like, when I'm really trying to focus on a writing project, I mean, I get distracted, like all of us do. And people will say, well, Shadi, just don't get distracted or put your phone in another room. Like, but then I can just go to the other room and pick up my phone. Like, how is that going to be an effective way? Or like, don't surf, don't go on, you know, random websites and read about like, I don't know, interesting things, but it's there. There used to be a time, if I recall, in the early to mid 2000s, some of you might recall this, where to have a Wi-Fi connection, you would have like a little card slot thing. And if you didn't have that like Wi-Fi card thing that you put into the computer, you would have no way of accessing the internet. Those were the good old days. Um, but so I use, I use an app called uh, Freedom, which is actually about constraint. So freedom cannot be overridden. You, anyone can download it, and you block certain websites for a certain period of time, and nothing you can do can override it. So none of this like restarting, because some apps, they let you have a workaround. That's not going to fly. So, But it's interesting that the people behind freedom called it that because they're getting, I think, at a fundamental truth. True freedom requires constraint. Or, or, okay. That was, a, that was an interesting reaction to it. Okay. No, I'm really nerdy and excited because oh, okay. um, this, I teach a class at Iowa State called Liberty and Law in America. And one of the essay questions I pose to them at the end of the class is, does true liberty require constraint? Almost word for word. Oh, okay. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is synthesis here. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I teach them is it, it might, right? Because tr complete freedom is anarchy potentially. Right? In which case, paradoxically, no one is free at all. Um, so in my mind, it does. In my mind, we do need some constraint in order to, to recognize our choices and to be secure in our persons and possessions and, and that sort of thing. But maybe also in um, our use of time. But I think, I think constraints have to, in some sense, be externally imposed. And that's where it becomes a bit challenging because I think in our day and age, people don't like the idea of external constraint. 
the constraint that they're willing to accept is supposed to come from within. I don't really know how that works, though. But this is where, you know, religion, I think, provides a certain kind of external constraint, not quite like an app, but, um, but you know, because God is external and he's a force that we don't really have ourselves any control over. So it's, it's powers in someone else's hands and you essentially give yourself up to that. And that is a very powerful constraint. Now, the problem sometimes, you know, I'll, you know, I'll get in debates where you can sort of, should religion be instrumentalized where even if people don't feel it in their hearts that they can still use religion in a way to give themselves constraints, but there's a problem. Religion doesn't tend to be effective unless you actually believe it. And that becomes like a challenging thing for people because um, a lot of people just can't bring themselves to believe, so they don't really have the option of God being an external constraint. So I, I, I know, athe you know atheists and agnostics who would, who would say something like, if only we could believe in God as you do, our lives would be easier. They, in a sense, want it, but they can't get there. And then they're sort of in a difficult spot. Um, but maybe, because we, we were talking about this earlier, do you want to say anything about how you think atheists, you were talking about some friends who don't believe in God and how they approach these questions of meaning? Yeah, um, so I am a person of faith, but one of my dearest friends I was actually talking to on the drive here um, who lives in the UK is an atheist, and um, she has told me in the past that she doesn't feel, she, she experiences meaning through living her life and does not feel the need to point to something grander or some design or something transcendent in order to garner that meaning. Um, and it's perhaps something that she and I would need to delve into more deeply because to me it do that doesn't resonate um, but to her my my religion my faith doesn't resonate um, but then where do her constraints come from like how does she kind of imagine that structure uh, moral constraints particularly um, I think that there is this notion that we the golden rule essentially um, is that we treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves um, why? But that, why? Well, I, that's that would be my question <laughs> to her. So um, I don't think that there's not not to give away everything I think here, but um, I don't know that there's a good answer to that question. I think that you are stuck in a sort of um, infinite regress, yeah. <laughs> essentially, unless you end somewhere. But. So I mean, I actually want to like slightly take a different view here, which is I I tend to think. My own experience, I definitely understand what you mean about like religion is constrained, but I think that my own experience is it's often on the other side. It's actually like um, the kind of philosophy that I love, the kind of poetry that I love, and a lot of religion that I've encountered is actually like a door into a far, far larger world rather than a smaller one. So if I, th if I think about um, some of the kind of background stories that we get told in um, in like contemporary America, they are either, they're, they're small in a whole series of ways. They're like, um, you know, I think a very common one is just the one that we were talking about, like go to school, do well, get credentialed, and then um, be able to afford enough money to live in the posh suburbs. That's like a pretty small story, actually. Hmm. Um, 
the kind of story to go back to the medieval peasant about like there is um, like an entire kind of world that you like participate in that has depth and beauty and meaning to it and that can have a like actual significance that's like actually a much larger mm. kind of s s story now the I think that the question then is like, how do those two features, like your own hope for autonomy and expression, and then a world that does have certain structure to it, like how can those go together? And I think that that's the tension where our culture is like stuck, stuck at the moment. We're actually trying to work out something that is genuinely paradoxical and then having lots of trouble. Yeah, because I think once you experience a lot of autonomy and choice, even if you realize it's making you unhappy, it's very hard to give it up. Um, and that's why very rarely people like voluntarily say, I'm going to restrict my choices in all these different ways and become a monk, for example, and go, you know, go into the priesthood um, or something comparable to that. Just people, like once freedom is tasted, it's not usually given but, up. The, you know, the people, I do have friends that have done things like that. and the, Okay, but it's not super, I, I want to just say it's reasonable. Not, but when they have made those kinds of choices, it's almost always with that experience of it being a larger rather than a smaller world that they're entering. Yeah, yeah. And there are the, obviously communities, religious communities, where they actually encourage um, the you know younger people to leave for a year or two and to experience the world and then if they do decide to come back they're going to be much more committed because they've seen both sides I mean the Bruderhof communities like that certain Amish communities and so on um, on this question of religion does anyone want to jump in uh, with a uh, yeah, <clears throat> really enjoying this conversation. John Wisniewski uh, from here in Des Moines. I'll actually be moving to D.C. in the fall for, for grad school. Um, I, I'm, I find it interesting that this is ostensibly a, a discussion about purpose, and we've spent most of the last 20 minutes or so talking about freedom and autonomy, and we really started with that, too, with the sort of different uh, jars of jam uh, analogy. I'm wondering if uh, you guys could hone in a little bit more on like what exactly we mean by freedom. Um, I spent some time studying moral theology. There's this, um, I think, resurgence of um, virtue ethics, the idea of virtue ethics, a very important book that, that at least that changed my understanding of freedom and morality and the good life is a book by a Dominican priest named Survey Pinkers, and he makes this distinction between freedom of indifference versus freedom for excellence. And the freedom of indifference is simply um, kind of what we were talking about earlier. The more choices, the more freedom I have. Um, whereas uh, freedom for excellence is this understanding that actually to be free is, is to be able to choose the good easily. Mm. Um, and so in that case, it's an entirely different conception of freedom. But I, I, I feel like the modern world is under this sort of I would call it a spell, uh, a misunderstanding of what true freedom is as simply the multiplication of choices. I'm wondering how that perhaps ties into the question of finding purpose when we do now have all of these different ways that you could spend your life, fulfill yourself. How do those things tie in? That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.